All right, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're back into 1 Corinthians. We're picking up where we left off after Paul talked to us about marriage and singleness and sexuality. And um, now he's um, going to bring us into a new topic in chapter 8. But I want to start with a question this morning, and that is, do you know... Uh, or rather, what do you know? What do you know that most people don't realize? What do you know that most people don't realize? Maybe it's a band you discovered or a type of music that you realize is better than all the other stuff out there. The masses are content with such mediocre music, right? But you know what the really good music is. Amen. Or maybe it's a certain type of food or a certain type of coffee or a certain restaurant that's so much better than the stuff everyone else eats or drinks. You know about the good stuff. Or maybe it's your field of employment or interest. Maybe you have a degree in science, in psychology, in literature, in economics. You have studied or you have years of experience and you know your field, you have some expertise and other people are so ignorant when they talk about your subject. They don't know often what they're talking about. If any of that describes you like it sometimes describes me, then be careful because as Paul reminds us in verse one, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge tends to make us proud, doesn't it? It's hard to see in ourselves, but we sure see it in other people, don't we? (laughs) That guy who has to be the smartest one in the room, for example, that just drives us crazy. I have a relative who works for the government. She's really bright. She's well-educated. She cares a lot. And she's always complaining about her fellow government employees, how inept they are, how the bad choices they make, so much so that her brother-in-law bought her a t-shirt that says on it, I see stupid people. (laughs) And he said maybe she could wear it to work under her dress clothes. (laughs) Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's true in the church, right? Some of us really know our theology. We know a lot about the Bible. We can see what's wrong with the church and we have great ideas of how to fix it. Question, does that knowledge puff us up? I've caught it puffing up me at times. I remember one of the biggest things I realized back in 2007 when I left our former church in Canada, I was processing, I was reflecting on some of the mistakes I'd made in those first years of being a pastor. And one of the things I realized was that there were people in that church I really did not respect. I was too puffed up to respect them. And as a result, because they sensed my disrespect for them and they resented it, my ability to lead them suffered. I couldn't lead them in a way that built them up because the truth was that I didn't love them. I was puffed up toward them instead. Knowledge puffs up 
and I had an, a lot of knowledge. I was right out of seminary. But love builds up. What do you know that might be puffing you up a bit? I'll give you just a second to think about that. You don't have to say it out loud. What do you know that might be puffing you up a bit? One of the things I've found um, is that um, sometimes it's what we've just learned, what we've just learned. Maybe it, it has to do with a step of growth that we've just taken. I was talking to Kim Maldonado about this uh, recently, and she agreed that this happens to her too. And she said, I could share this story. Um, we've both realized at different times when we've had new revelations, we've realized something new. God has shown us something that we, we hadn't seen before. And, and so we grow to a new level as a result of that. We've realized that before we know it, it doesn't take long before we find ourselves turning around and looking down on those who don't get it who don't see it. And, and then we have to remind ourselves that was us like last week <laughs> because we just learned it ourselves. New knowledge especially puffs up, but love builds up. And isn't this something coming from the Apostle Paul? I, I mean, who knows more than Paul? He's a theological titan. He's a heavyweight he was super smart. He was super educated. He understood the things of God and the way of Jesus so well that the Holy Spirit used him to write a great part of the New Testament. Paul had a grasp on things that 2,000 years later we're still trying to sort out and understand. And yet Paul realized this about knowledge. It's not all that knowledge that matters most. No, it's love that matters most. And he's going to go on and talk about that in chapter 13. And what a good word that is for us today as we're prepared to hear this report from the task force. And I didn't plan this passage for this morning, but what a good word for us to remember that knowledge, if we're not careful, puffs us up, but we're called to love, which builds one another up. Paul is, is, going to go at this in, in chapter 8 with the Corinthian church because they're once again puffed up about something they know, something they've discovered, but in their knowledge, they're tearing other believers down in, when they should be building them up. In this case, it has to do with something very archaic and obscure for us, but something that was very everyday and practical for them eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol. Let me explain what this was so that we can see how important it was in their case, and then we'll figure out how it applies to us today. Back in Paul's day, worship regularly and normally involved a meal. And this was true uh, in a pagan Greek city like Corinth. It was true for God's people too. For example, if you were an Israelite, what did you do when you went to the temple to worship God? Well, you brought a sacrifice. And it depended on the type of the sacrifice, but most often the worshipers got to eat part of the sacrifice. The temple in Jerusalem, like all ancient temples, had dining rooms. And since um, meat was scarce back then, meat was a luxury, to eat meat with your family and your friends meant you were having a party. Likewise, in Corinth, pagan worshipers would gather 
in the temple of one of their gods and they'd sacrifice to the gods and the meat being sacrificed would be divided up into portions by the priests and one portion would be burned on the altar to the gods and another portion would be served to the worshipers. And then what was left over would be sold to the grocers for sale in the marketplace. And we'll come back to that fact when we get to chapter 10. But again, this would be a banquet. It would be a party. And here's the thing. There were not a lot of good eat-in restaurants back then. <laughs> in fact, basically, the temples to the various gods were the main restaurants, or at least the good restaurants. There were probably little street vendors here and there. And the priests were basically butchers and chefs. And almost everyone was religious at some level then. They, you know, gave their adherence to this God or to that God. So if you wanted to go out with your family or your friends and celebrate and have a nice meal, you went to a temple. That's where you went. If you wanted to celebrate a wedding, maybe, or an anniversary, you booked a party at a temple. If you wanted to network with other people in your line of business, if you belonged to a trade guild, you met for a meal with the guild at a temple. So much of social life happened in temples. And after a short ritual to honor the God of the temple, you'd share a nice meal with those present. I know it's so unlike what we're used to. It's hard to imagine, but this was everyday life for people back then. But here's the problem. For Jews and Christians, they couldn't participate because we believe in one God, Yahweh, the Lord. And so the Christians back then weren't going like the Jews weren't going to the temple of Zeus or Aphrodite or to the cult of the emperor for a sacrifice to take place um, to worship that God and then for the meal that went along with that worship. They weren't going to those meals. And so this meant they had to turn down wedding invitations and rite of passage celebrations, maybe for the teenage child of their boss. And they couldn't attend uh, events with business partners and there would be potential contacts or customers there. And they missed out. So they missed out on business opportunities and networking opportunities. And they couldn't go to guild meetings where deals were struck and policies and decisions were made that influenced them and their trades and their businesses. So this was a serious sacrifice for them. They weren't part of the mainstream. They weren't normal. They couldn't blend in. They couldn't, it was harder to get ahead. They were constantly different and they were constantly at a disadvantage. Well, some of the Corinthians, the really smart ones, came up with a solution probably wealthier, high-class ones who could uh, visit temples often because meat was very expensive and the poorer people rarely could afford meat at all and only ate it at the big city-wide festivals to the pagan gods where someone else rich was footing the bill and everyone could just come and eat for free. That was the only time the poor people got meat. So some of the Corinthians, these smart Corinthians, were thinking about this problem about not being able to go to temple meals and they realized that Paul had taught them that the gospel gives us freedom and that God is no longer concerned about what we eat like he was in the Old Testament. And so we're free to eat whatever we want. And further, the Corinthians realized gods like Zeus and Dionysus aren't really gods at all. There's only one God, one Lord. 
Others are just imaginary. So these Corinthians concluded, once we realize this, it follows that there's actually no problem going to the temple and joining in. The God of the temple isn't real. The worship is a sham. The meat is just meat. So what's to keep us from going and participating and enjoying? Now, let me ask you, what do you think of this argument? Are they right? Zeus isn't real. Dionysus isn't real. Meat is just meat. So is it okay to go to the temple and sit through the sham religious ritual, the sacrifice, so you can participate in the party afterwards, which is the main point anyway. Like, I mean, come on, everyone politely sits through the, the little religious rituals, but most of them are there for the fun, <laughs> for the social connection, for the networking. So what do we think of this argument? Well, the Corinthians were acting on this new knowledge that they had arrived at. And Paul had written to them previously in response, it seems. And what Paul had told them clearly in Paul's previous letter to them was to stop. Stop going to the temple. Stop eating idle food because doing so is idolatry. It's wicked. It's evil. And it's deadly. And the Corinthians had written back and saying, you don't understand, Paul. We don't need to stop. Because it's not idolatry. We know. We have knowledge. It's not idolatry. We know that idols aren't real. We know the pagan gods aren't real. We know there's only one God. We know the true God doesn't care about food, what we eat or don't eat. So we can eat it. It's just food. Okay, so all of that, the Corinthians' newfound knowledge and their behavior and Paul's previous letter to them about it and their response is almost likely in the background of Paul replying to them in today's passage about food sacrificed to idols. Paul says, verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know we all possess knowledge. Paul's like, yeah, you know stuff. Well, I know stuff too. We all possess knowledge. We can all claim we're in the know, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Verse 2, those who think they know something, you Corinthians, do not yet know as they ought to know. So here's Paul's basic response to them. Oh, yeah, you know so much? Well, guess what? Here's something you should know that obviously you don't know yet. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then Paul continues to apply this to their situation. Verse 4, he begins by stating where he agrees with them. That's always a good idea. So, so then about food sacrifice to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And by the way, the Greeks used gods to refer to the classical Greek gods like Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite, etc. And they used lords to refer to the newer Eastern mystery religions, um, deities like Mithras and Sibyl and Dionysus. Many gods and many lords. Yet, Paul continues, verse 6, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There is one God who alone made everything. Everything that exists has come from that one. 
And so we are to live for God alone. And we have one Lord, Jesus Christ. God made everything through Christ. And we can live for God and know God only through Christ. On these wonderful truths, Paul agrees with the Corinthians. Yes, true, Zeus and Hermes, Dionysus and Sybil are are nothing. They're make-believe gods. We are so blessed. We're so fortunate to know the real God, the true God, and Jesus, his son, our Savior. But, Paul continues, and here's where the importance of love comes in. Look around you. Think about the other people who are trying to follow Jesus with you. Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Some people, Paul says to the Corinthians who have this new knowledge, your brothers and sisters in Christ Before they met Jesus, they spent their whole lives worshiping Aphrodite or Mithras, going to temple, idol temples and eating the sacrifices. They have deeply ingrained in their hearts and in their emotions that to eat meals at the temple, these pagan temples, is to worship these gods. And so they haven't caught on to your advanced knowledge yet. And so for them to go back to the temple again after coming to know Jesus and to go back and participate again in the temple meals, for them, that's still idolatry. Sure, food by itself doesn't matter to God. It's neutral. What we eat or don't eat doesn't bring us closer to God or keep us from God, verse 8. But verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The Corinthians who had this advanced knowledge about idle food, um, that, that it was okay for them to eat it, they were saying something like this. We know that we have a right to eat whatever we want because of Jesus. We have freedom in the gospel to eat whatever we want because we know that God doesn't care. And we're not going to let anyone else take away our rights. But to this, Paul counters. Ah, but see, your knowledge has puffed you up. You should be thinking about love, not about knowledge. You should be thinking about those who you see as weak, whose whose consciences won't allow them to eat this idle food. And if you drag them along to the sacrifice in some pagan temple and you encourage them to eat the meal with you, and if they eat it feeling uncomfortable, feeling guilty about it, you're going to cause them to stumble. Verse 10, for if someone goes with you to the idol temple and they see you with all your knowledge eating there, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Now, interesting, there's a great play on words here in Greek that's hard to express in English so it doesn't get translated. Literally, Paul says, won't that person who's seeing you eating at the temple, who's emboldened to eat, won't they be built up to eat what sacrifice to idols? Won't they be built up? It's not the way we would say it. Um, but Paul's point in using that word is, is that how you want to build people up? Do you want to build them up to do something that they think is wrong? Is that how you, with all of your knowledge, are building up your fellow believers? You're building them up to do something wrong that violates their conscience. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. 
Now, destroyed is a strong word. If, if someone goes to the temple and eats this idol food, even though they feel it's wrong, they will be destroyed? Well, it's hard for us to understand how deep of a grip idol worship has on the souls of people um, back then and still in some cultures today. When we get a little further along into chapter 10, we'll, we'll see that there are demons involved in idol worship and in these temples to other gods. And Jesus has freed people from this. And, and many of the Corinthians had come out of this. And now these knowledgeable Corinthians who've grown past it, they're trying to drag their fellow believers who are still weak in this regard back into it saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's not wrong. Come on, get your theology straight. Don't you believe in Jesus? Come on, join us. And, and Paul sees where this can lead. Imagine if you're an alcoholic and as hard as you tried, you, you couldn't quit. You couldn't give it up for years and it was destroying your life. And then you met Jesus and Jesus radically and wonderfully delivered you. And you're sober and, and you've come to enjoy a new life and a new freedom in your life. And then someone else in church says, there's nothing wrong with alcohol. Why, why are you a teetotaler, you know? Um, come to the bar with me. Come on, let's have a good time. And so you go along and they buy you a drink and your old friends are there, your old drinking buddies are there and they welcome you back and you don't feel comfortable with it, but for the sake of your church friend who thinks they know more about this Jesus thing than you do, you have a drink with them and then you have another and soon you're back into it and it destroys you. And that's what Paul realizes very well can happen with idol worship too, with, with temple meals. And Paul's like, okay, you have this knowledge. Are you willing to go ahead and destroy a brother or sister who's weak because of your knowledge? And then he concludes personally, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Because it's not about knowledge. It's about love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up rather than tearing people down. And Paul's like, step back and get some perspective on this. That brother or sister that you're encouraging to go along with you to the idol banquets, Christ died for them. Christ gave everything to save them, to set them free from their past lives that they were stuck in and, and if you lead them into what for them is still sinful and might even destroy them, you don't just sin against them. You sin against Christ. Because they belong to Christ. They're part of Christ's body. And if you hurt them, you harm Christ. You sin against your Lord. All right, how do we apply this today? Idol worship is not something, it's not a thing anymore for most of us, though it is for some people. Um, it's not something that's even on most of our radar. But the principle is clear, right? You may have knowledge. You may have understanding about something. You might realize it's okay for you, that it's not sinful for you to do this or to that. But don't let that knowledge harm others. Don't let that knowledge puff you up. Because following Jesus isn't about what you know, and it's not about what you have the right to do. It's about how well you love and how well I love. And if you love people, you will do what builds them up. Let me give you one application. I, I grew up in a German family, and um, 
My last name's Wiedenhaft, right? Go figure. And, and in my family, alcohol was the normal part of our life and our culture. My parents modeled for me how to drink responsibly, how to drink in moderation, and how to really enjoy a good wine or a good beer. I never saw my parents drunk. My dad really enjoyed a, a cold beer once in a while after a long, hard day. He did construction work. My mom enjoyed a glass of wine once in a while. And my parents taught me that drunkenness is sinful, but drinking in moderation is a good gift from a good God. So I carried this knowledge out into life. And of course, it wasn't long before I ran into other Christians who didn't agree with that. They had been taught that to drink a single drop is sinful. That alcohol is the devil's brew. So question, should I abstain around them? Well, notice what Paul is not saying, at least in this passage. He is not saying that I should abstain so I don't offend other strong Christians. He's not talking about that, at least in this passage. He's not talking about strong Christians with holy attitudes who firmly believe, in this case, in abstaining. He's not saying I shouldn't drink so I don't offend them, at least in this particular passage. What Paul is talking about in this passage is weak Christians who have a problem with alcohol personally. And if I drink around them, they might be tempted to drink, even though they would feel guilty about doing it, and it could lead them into major trouble or even destroy them. Maybe it would cause them to relapse into a addiction. Maybe it would feel them to feel guilty because them, for them it was sinful. It's those weak people, Paul says, that I need to love. I need to put aside my knowledge about alcohol so I don't cause them to stumble or to be destroyed. That's his message in this passage. So what else can we apply this to? Uh, people who think it's wrong to work on Sunday um, or to miss church for a ball game or to go to certain movies. Again, I'm not talking about strong Christians who might be offended by these things, but Christians with weak consciences who may be tempted to join us in doing these things, even though they think they're wrong. Then let's broaden the application as well. Knowledge puffs up, right? Love builds up. What has our knowledge puffed us up about so that we look down on others and we somehow think we're superior? And so truth be told, our attitude toward others isn't very loving. I've been around Presbyterians who thought they were better than everyone else because they understood predestination and other people didn't. I've been around conservative Christians who thought they were better because they knew women should not teach men. And I've been around others who thought they were better because they knew women could teach men. I've been around homeschoolers who thought they were better because they knew homeschooling was the better way to educate your kids. And on and on it goes. In fact, religion breeds this kind of puffed up attitude. We breed it, which is why we need the gospel over and over and over again. And, and Paul, who, who, who knows more than all of us, has it clear. It's love that matters more than knowledge. And love builds others up. So what do you know that's puffing you up? 
Will you recommit yourself to focusing on love and seeing who you can build up instead? Let's pray.